0: Hi, everyone. Today, we're thrilled to have Mark Shakin back on the show to talk about his latest thriller, Cramdown. It's a tale of high-stakes bankruptcy drama, missing persons, and a race against the clock. Here's the inside scoop on the author. Mark Shakin lives with his wife, Lauren, and their dog, Emily, in Denver, Colorado. He schooled at Haverford College and Washburn University and practiced commercial bankruptcy law for almost four decades before moving on to writing, board service, and his photography and music. He is the author of four novels in his 3J legal thriller series, including Cram Down, the book we're going to visit with Mark about today. He also has a nonfiction title available called And Just Like That, Essays on a Life Before, During, and After the Law. You can learn more about Mark and his work at MarkShakenAuthor.com. Hi, Mark. Welcome back to Inside
1: Scoop Live. Hi, Sherry. Yeah. Thanks for having me back on.
0: I can't wait to talk about your newest book, Cram Down. So why don't you just get us started by uh, telling us a little bit about the story?
1: So Cram Down is another one of the legal financial thrillers in the 3J thriller series that I've been working on since about 2020. So it's been three years now of uh, the star, Josephina Julian Jones, 3J to her friends. And in Cram Down, a husband and wife come to uh, hire her. Um, they own a company named Abode, and Abode builds homes in Kansas City for um, lower-income marginalized community members, mm. not unlike what Habitat does in so many cities, including here in Denver. Yeah, And Abode had a, a fairly large line of credit with a local bank uh, in the book named Commonwealth, um, and the Commonwealth in the book is a black-owned bank and has been since the 1880s when it was chartered by The current owner is great, 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 great. I don't remember how many greats there are, grandparents, (laughs) who had migrated to um, the Kansas City during what was called in the Civil War, the exoduster migration, which was the migration of of black people from the South. They were trying to get to Kansas, which was a free state, but they ended up in Kansas City, which was in Missouri, which was a former, below the Mason-Dixon line, southern state. Mm. So... They have this large line of credit that there are two brothers now who own the bank, the great, great, great grandkids of the original founders. And the two have very different visions for the bank. Um, One brother named Amadi, who's the president, believes that it's the bank's purpose to continue the family's longstanding mission of helping the uh, underserved communities in Kansas City, including the black community. And the other brother is all about cryptocurrency and making money and uh, chastises the president that the bank is a for-profit entity and therefore it should be focused on profit, not service.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, the president had formerly controlled the bank, but had lost control through a series of personal events to this um, brother, Jordan. And then um, the president disappears mysteriously, and the loan is terminated by the, I'll call him the bad brother. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, 3J, in order to save the company and the the two uh, individuals, the Franklin, she has to try to find Amadi before the couple of weeks are up when everything kind of gets flushed down the toilet. And so she puts together a team to try to find the missing brother. The mob is involved, Kansas City. Kansas City has a very rich history of mob activity, yeah. I guess I'll call it. Yeah. And so I've created uh, an Irish mobster, Robbie McFadden, who sits atop the Irish mob in Kansas City, uh, and went to Wharton, so he runs his organization like a business, and that's one of his favorite phrases, it's just business. Yeah. And so the whole book is the sort of frenetic search for the brother before the clock runs out, and you know, is he going to be alive when they find him, will he be dead, and uh, you sort of get into the, the, certainly you're always in the head of 3J, because she's the star, but you sort of meet Robbie McFadden, and find out what makes him tick, you understand what makes the bad bank brother tick. And you meet some of the, the mobsters uh, in the book that I created, some yeah. of whom are good bad guys, and some of whom are very bad bad guys.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's a great way to put it. And before we go any further, congratulations are in order, because I understand in its first week, Cramdown down debuted in Amazon's 100 bestseller list for financial thrillers.
1: Yeah, that was kind of stunning. I appreciate everybody that um, went out and got the book and read it. And that's not happened before, although um, it mm. certainly makes me feel warm and fuzzy when it does happen. So absolutely,
0: absolutely. Well, congratulations. Yeah. I love how each book in your three J legal thriller series uses a bankruptcy term as its title. Why did you choose cram down as the legal focal point for this story?
1: So you're correct. All of the titles of the book come from something that's either expressly in the bankruptcy law or just part of the bankruptcy law fiber over the more than a decade since the original Bankruptcy Act was passed in 1898. And all of them really have two meanings. If you've read the books, not only is it that something going on in the case that 3J is handling that addresses that particular bankruptcy issue. Mm-hmm. Hopefully not in a way that makes everybody fall asleep because I recognize bankruptcy isn't wildly exciting for the me. <laughs> um, but it, it also has another meaning. And so in cram down, it's a pretty crass term to find in a federal law. And it actually is not a phrase that appears directly in the bankruptcy code. It's what the judges over the years have dubbed this particular process in bankruptcy because it's kind of the ultimate fight in a business bankruptcy Mm -hmm. if it's activated by one side or the other. And um, the, you know, the loser comes away feeling like this whole thing was crammed down their throat. They don't really get a vote, or if they had a vote, their vote is overruled by the judge and the plan of how they're going to get paid or not get paid back is sort of forced down their throat. And that's this sort of history of the phrase in bankruptcy Mm. in the book. There's a whole lot of things that are being crammed down one party's throat or another that may not be the the legal things. And so I I felt like it was a, a fun phrase to have more than one meaning, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. Let's talk about some of your characters, starting with 3J, uh, Josephina Jillian Jones. She's just a captivating lead in the series. And I feel like in Cramdown, we get to see more of her vulnerabilities and especially through the like kind of glimpses into her past through her inner thoughts or, or, or memories. What inspired you to add these new layers to her character and and kind of, I guess, like explore them or show the reader in in this way?
1: Well, I mean, that's a great question. 3J is a New Orleans kid who grew up in the Lower Ninth Ward and then another neighborhood named Treme uh, down there. And I've just been fascinated with New Orleans. We started going there, you know, some 25 years ago. At least once a year. In fact, we're heading back there uh, end of October. Mm. So first, it made sense to me since I love New Orleans so much, and it's just so rich in its its own you know history that the Lee character have some connection to New Orleans because I have some connection to New Orleans. Mm. So that would be number one. Number two, if you spend any time before Katrina or after Katrina in the Lower Ninth Ward, you start to realize how very difficult it is to grow up in New Orleans as a a lower middle class, you know, kid, let alone a lower middle class black kid in a very southern, you know, part of the country.
0: Yeah.
1: And I always find that kind of compelling. So there's a lot of opportunity to to sort of develop that out. And then the third thing that you learn in Cramdown is that despite what her father told her about not always running toward danger, she has a real problem avoiding that. We learn that in Unfair Discrimination, where they had come up with this great plan. The team had come up with this great plan of how to take down the white nationalist, which didn't involve 3J. And she was supposed to not, you know, be out on the street running toward a guy with a knife. Right. And you start to learn that she, um, she understands that she's, I mean, she's super smart, but um, she just has a real hard time avoiding that. And you start to learn a bit about that. And that probably comes from um, just, kids I knew growing up in high school um, in Connecticut. So it's a real gumbo of different things that that influence the development of a character. But with 3J, I just am sort of enjoying the going to New Orleans and having a list of things I want to figure out to add to the next book. So in October, when we go back, uh, and I have a guide that I've met who I love down there. And I, I must sound like a very untypical tourist when I call <laughs> her and say, I'm coming for three days. And here's what I need to know. I need to find a high school that she went to where she could have excelled at, you know, track and soccer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the <laughs> guide reads the books, and I, and I and I call and I say this, and you can hear her and her husband in the background coming up, oh, well, she probably went to this high school, so we'll take you there.
0: <laughs> oh, I love that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So a, a lot of what you'll read in the book about 3J's background is based on true things that are in New Orleans, you know, the whole trip that she took to City Park with her father and the flashback in Cramdown. That's a real park with those are real trees there, and there's there really is a a beignet restaurant there that the locals go to. Yeah, Um, Well, you know, that
0: just makes it much more authentic.
1: And then uh, most all of the Kansas City historical things, including the whole discussion in the book about the history of the mob in Kansas City, that's all true to the best of my ability. So the thing I enjoy is sort of coming up with a story that's fictional, but having it sit in a bowl that's completely nonfiction.
0: Absolutely. And I do have some questions around that. Uh, but I want to finish up with your characters first. I absolutely, this was a toss up for me between 3J, who's going to be my star always, of course, but then Robbie McFadden. I absolutely love that character. He's the villain. He's the big bad mob boss, but he's not your typical mob boss. He has academic credentials and, and he's like almost like a historian too for Kansas City. So Shed some light on how you crafted, well, I don't know, maybe just a, such a complex adversary.
1: Well, he's, he is the Irish you know, mobster who went to Wharton. He loves history, Kansas City history in particular. He's a great way for me to have a voice in the book to talk about the things that are Kansas City history that I enjoy without sounding like the omniscient narrator is boring everybody to tears. <laughs> Um, with little snippets that are being forced, Robbie gives me a method by mm-hmm. which things that probably have something to do with the current plot, you know, in the present, relate to something that really did happen in the past. So Robbie, for example, will wax on about his recollection of the history of kidnapping in Kansas City during the Great Depression, which was quite a money-making uh, proposition in the city at the time. <laughs> Um, and some extremely famous, at least famous for Kansas City, you know, prominent families um, had people kidnapped for no purpose other than, you know, pay a ransom, which which was the money-making uh, proposition. <laughs> and, and perhaps a little bit like me, Robbie can talk too much about history and bore the audience, but unlike me, his audience is scared of him that he'll have them, you know, <laughs> killed. And so they don't, they don't ever actually c- express to him that, you know, they've had enough, they can't stand any more history lessons. <laughs> Uh, he prattles on, he lives on Ward Parkway, which is where all the big mansions are in Kansas City from the turn of the century. Very proud that he lives a few doors down from where the biggest mob boss uh, and who ran the city without being an elected official, um, Tom Pendergast, actually did live Mm. uh, on Ward Parkway. Um, And so, you know, the fun part of this is if you're not from Kansas City, it's fine. None of this really makes the book unapproachable. And if you are from Kansas City, you start emailing me <laughs> late at night that you're at this part of the book and you you didn't really know that there was a a woman who was kidnapped from her bathtub in the 30s. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, but I, I I don't know where Robbie actually came from. You know, I didn't go to Wharton, but it just it just seemed like a fun character that came to me and is easy to develop and might actually appear again in uh, subsequent books in a little bit different context playing around with.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. I really enjoyed his character and the way that you used him to incorporate history, how it flowed, you know, through him and, and and especially the part about his, his underlings being afraid to confront him about ah too much history. I enjoyed the historical parts. I love learning about, you know, the history of places because we're America. We don't have a really deep history like if you compare it to another country, but but we have some pretty pretty neat little historical towns in Kansas City
1: is one of them for sure. Yeah, I'm kind of a not a place anybody thinks to stop off when they're flying across the country, but it's actually beautiful, and it it is quite rich in history. It was pretty prominent during the Depression because it was a place that people from all over the country came for wild weekends because Prohibition was more of a suggestion in Kansas City than a law. (laughs) If you wanted a party and and that involved drinking and, and, um, you know, red light districts, Kansas City was the go-to place.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that's funny. Suggestion. So tell us a bit about the dynamics between the banker twins, Amadi and Jordan Brown. It's really an intense sibling rivalry.
1: Yeah, they're twins. And they're as unlike each other as, you know, twins can be and you know one is Amati is continuing the family legacy of serving the community even though it means that the bank's you know return on investment is lower ahmadi is willing to make loans to support the community even if it means that the bank doesn't make as much money from that loan Mm -hmm. and there are many banks throughout the united states that are um, more community oriented in fact uh, the the term people use for them is community banks Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're banks, and so they still have regulators and have to, you know, be a bank, but their portfolio is different, and they probably do make less money for the ownership than uh, a bank that is a little less community-oriented and has stricter guidelines for lending and things like that. The brother, Jordan, who did not grow up at the feet of his parents in the bank learning the trade, but comes back to the bank when the parents die, the brother, Jordan, is greedy and his vision is that the bank turns to greener pastures, meaning money. Um, and they do that with something that is, you know, happening now in banks, which is, you know, fintech it's called and uh, cryptocurrency and a blockchain, things that we all hear about are in banks and de- developing very quickly. And, uh, you know, for a forward-looking, profit-oriented banker, they're the wave of the future. But to go that path, he believes you've got to leave behind all of these um, borrowers like uh, Abode because mm-hmm. they're dragging the bank down. And when he explains why he doesn't like the Abode loan, he sounds like uh, a white banker from the 1930s and 40s who's redlining. You know, he doesn't like that loan because it's in effect loans to minority communities and he can't sell the loans. And he, if he foreclosed on the loans and took back the properties in the neighborhoods that the properties were located in he couldn't sell them and so he doesn't really want to be involved in that kind of collateral which is sort of uh, one of the cornerstones of redlining yeah you don't you don't do it because you don't want to ultimately you know help those kinds of people quote unquote and you don't ultimately want to have that kind of collateral
0: which is interesting for his character considering his family background and and all that
1: yeah, exactly. But he hates history. I mean, he has these arguments with his brother who always tells him that you can't run from your past. It's part of us. And he doesn't care. Uh, the, the bad brother, uh, Jordan, doesn't care about history. He He's completely forward-looking. History just gets in the way. Yeah. Which is why when he meets his old friend, Robbie McFadden, because they went to high school together, um, and Robbie starts prattling on about history, it almost makes Jordan go crazy. <laughs> <See>? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, and he can't say anything about it either. <laughs>
1: oh, no, no, right, exactly. He can just yell at his brother, he doesn't yell at the, the mob boss.
0: Right, right, yeah. Yeah, their relationship was so adversarial. It was like next level. You know, one of your characters, the bankruptcy judge, oh gosh, and I can't think of his name right now, but I love him. His, I'm always uh, eager to turn or, or I'll have an opinion. Oh, I can't wait to hear what he says about that. You know, and
1: <laughs> he's but a fun Rob- character. He is Judge Robertson um, who lives in a part of Kansas City named Romanelli Gardens. And when I graduated from law school, the first job I got was work clerking for a bankruptcy judge um, who grew up in Romanelli Gardens and it, it was still probably the peak of my career as far as um you know interesting and um such a great job and what you know, so lucky to have worked for judge pusateri uh, the uh there are parts of judge robertson that i'm i'm sure either um, intentionally or subconsciously are are drawn from judge pusateri's you know life mm-hmm. and uh i always thought judge pusateri um, would go on the bench and was very wise and people listen to him as a result. So there's that sort of fountain of information or experience that I I had in my own life that probably feeds quite a bit into the creation of Judge Robertson. Mm -hmm. Certainly Judge Robertson's relationship with his current law clerk, Jennifer Cuello, is pretty similar to what I experienced working for Judge Pusateri.
0: Mm -hmm. And the characters, those characters also provide another outlet for you to um, kind of familiarize the reader with with some of the bankruptcy laws. Yeah, yeah.
1: hopefully that part of the formula that there's going to be something bankruptcy about the books, because um, 3J is a bankruptcy lawyer, gets explained in a way that's not overload. It's understandable. It's a little, um, it's a little overwhelming, you know, to think that you're going to read a book that has some elements of bankruptcy in it. And some of the reviews say that it's handled well. And and there's a handful of the reviewers that that pop up that say it was too much, but Mm -hmm. it's hard to balance. You know, when you're doing a legal book, a legal thriller, there's going to have to be some law in it. Yeah. Even, even Michael Connelly, when he does the Lincoln lawyer, you know, they're in court, there's all this criminal law stuff going on. It seems very real and it seems like he's quite bent on it being accurate and i could see how somebody who likes crime, you know, stories would find that, you know, too much as well. So it it is it is hard to to balance that how much to tell versus, you know, how to smooth it out so it's not overwhelming.
0: Yeah. I think it was very well done because of the judge's character and his interaction with his law clerk and it was just very for me it was very informative and entertaining. So well, good. Yeah. So, yeah. You talked briefly about the ethical complexities surrounding housing for the underprivileged Uh, why did you choose that as the central conflict of your story
1: housing is one of those things that post my law career i'm um, super interested in and involved in i'm i'm on the habitat metro denver's finance committee Mm. i'm on the board of an organization here that tries to help keep the elderly in their homes, you know, as long as possible by matching them with somebody that can live with them and help out as they get older. Mm. So, the idea of, you know, the housing for the underprivileged or the aged is, you know, part of me, probably my future me. So, and a habitat model is, is actually pretty complicated. Surprisingly, it's not just we build houses and put, you know, underprivileged people into the homes. So, weaving that into the as part of the real important part of the story plot seem kind of natural just based on what I'm doing now, you know, post-law. Right. Um, it's an important issue. Redlining is, you know, a terrible thing. It probably still goes, well, That de- definitely still goes on. I mean, banks are a little savvier about how they do it, but um, it still goes on. And Kansas City has, unfortunately, a very rich history of both segregation because it was a below the Mason-Dixon line city Mm -hmm. on the Missouri side, and a a very uh, unfortunate but prominent uh, role in how to keep certain people out of certain neighborhoods. They had developers in Kansas City who specialized in that and took their plan kind of national and gave it to the rest of the country, unfortunately. To talk about housing in a book set in Kansas City and ignore the whole history of housing in Kansas City is kind of a whitewashing of what really went on. Uh, So it seemed kind of natural to to sort of draw on all of that. And once you get started on it, you're making cuts about what you're going to tell rather than having to struggle to to fill pages because there isn't enough information. There's an overwhelming amount of information in Kansas City. And so Mm -hmm. I like that aspect also that I can kind of mold it down rather than build it up in the story.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So do all of your novels include uh, an ethical element as well?
1: Yeah, I try. And in in most of them, there's something happening that's close to the line, as I'll call it. And 3J and her colleague, uh, William Pascal, have got to decide in each book whether they're going to step over that line, whether the ends justify the means, whether as a lawyer the ends can ever justify the means, and whether you can ever really step over the line. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times in the books, that line involves some kind of computer or technological invasion uh, or hack. And, you know, hacks are felonies, despite, you know, the ransomware yeah. um, stories that we all read about these days, they're, they're crimes. So you have two lawyers trying to decide whether what they're thinking of doing will step over that line. And in this book, they have two clients that are very adamant about the line, that that they don't step over the line, things but we're not going to step over the line. Uh, so without, you know, giving away what the technological dilemma is in and, and Cram Down, it's fun for me to give pascal and 3j that headache of um how far are they going to go
0: yeah and we know 3j is always ready to push that envelope now i'm getting a clear picture of how you bring all your stories together just by talking with you it's it's very personal
1: parts are i mean i truth be told i don't know any robbie mcfadden's <laughs> so right lots of it are personal parts of it are just you know don't yeah. up from when i walk the dog so i, I don't Not all of it is from personal experience, um, but a lot of it is. I think, you know, if you've been a lawyer working, you know, a lot of the clients were banks, you learn all of these things, um, you see some of it unfold, and it's just in there. So it's certainly going to be part of the mix.
0: Yeah, maybe authentic is a better word. I don't know. But yeah, I can just I can feel the influences from our conversation in your books. so. So you have these amazing characters, a great plot line history, bankruptcy, um, ethical complexities, and then you've also enriched the story with various cultural elements like jazz music and amazing food. Uh, how do these elements contribute to the atmosphere of the novel, and how important are they to the overall story, to you?
1: They're important to me. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything's important to me would make you know, for a good um, <laughs> Uh, not not at all I, I recognize that but they're important to kansas city um kansas city and jazz are um if you're a jazz historian which i'm not but if you were a jazz historian kansas city would be one of the first things that you mention when you start to talk about the birth of jazz new orleans as well so you know in the teens in the 20s and 30s kansas city was not only a hub for drinking and and uh red light districts but it was just a, a huge hub for uh, American jazz as it began to develop. You know, Charlie Parker was in Kansas City, uh, Count Basie and a guy named Jay McShan was there. Uh, just all these famous band leaders mm. or um, soloists like Parker um, showed up in Kansas City and then stayed for a while. So it's hard to talk about Kansas City and not um, acknowledge that it was a jazz capital at, at the birth of jazz. Yeah, it is the barbecue capital of the world, although I recognize that people in Texas and Tennessee may have other, other views. <laughs> but if you've been there, you'll fight that one to the death. Um, and so it's it, it's a funny place to talk about food because, you know, people will actually argue who makes the best sauce, who has the best smoke and who has the best rub. And, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll go to a, bar, a real greasy barbecue joint and you'll see, you know, bank presidents in there, you know, arguing about whether <laughs> this really is the best barbecue <laughs> you're not. So uh, it's kind of a funny mix of a lot of influences. And so not only does it give another element to the flavor of Kansas City, but it's to me, it's hard to write a book set in Kansas City and not give some nod to those types of things because they're there every day.
0: Well, yeah, and as a reader, I love that, that you have made it so authentic. And you can definitely feel that in your writing. How has writing this series impacted you as a writer?
1: hopefully I, I get better, you know, as I go along on this fiction journey that I'm on. I've written, uh, any lawyer would, would say they've written a ton during their career. So during the 40 years I was practicing, writing was what you do. Yeah. Um, writing and talking um, in court. But you don't write fiction, or at least you hope, <laughs> you hope <laughs> in court was fiction. <laughs> um and so the whole process of learning how to shift from writing, you know, nonfiction—be it, you know, court stuff or the first the memoir that I wrote um, of the not famous lawyer—you mm-hmm. hope that you're going to learn each time because it it is quite different to sort of develop, create characters, create the setting, the plot, make sure it sticks together well. You know, if you kind of go through a developmental editing process either a self-developmental editing process when you finish the first draft or hire somebody to take a look at it, you realize there are parts that need work. They don't flow together as well as real life just yeah. flows together with nonfiction. Um, so I'm hoping that as I finish the fourth and soon we'll start the, the fifth in the 3J series that they do get better. They stick together better and the storyline is a little better and I'm not head-hopping quite as much as I might have in the first book.
0: hmm mm. Well, yeah, it is learning and growing. So now I realize Cramdown just came out. And and again, as a reader, uh, I want to know when the next book is coming out. So I guess in the future, do you have plans to write more in the 3J series or do you have another avenue you want to explore?
1: I'm taking them one by one. There is another book in the 3J series. Um, It'll be tentatively named uh, For Cause another phrase from the Bankruptcy Code that can have a, a double entendre. So that'd be the fifth in the series. And in 2022, I actually wrote two of these books. One came out in April, one came out in December. And honestly, that was that was a little hard on the old guy here. <laughs> and not only be, did it become confusing as to the, the, the marketing of the books, um, it, it's hard to market, I'll call it book number one in 2022, when book number two is in the editing phase and... You know, I need to run to give a a presentation to a book club on book number one, but I need to get the edits back to the editor on book number two. So it was was a lot. So I vowed after that, we'll see how good I am about keeping this vow, that I would only do one book a year in the 3J series. So this book just came out, you know, I I think it officially came out like September 17th on Amazon anyway. Mm -hmm. And well, I have lots of notes for the next one. And I need to go to New Orleans to find this high school that 3J went to and take notes. Yeah, um, I, I really would hope that I wouldn't start writing the next one until between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. And that way I can guarantee that I won't have two books come out in the same year. Ah. So I would guess that the next one would come out between April and June next year ish, something like that. OK, OK.
0: Yeah, that that is an awful lot trying to do two at two at once and. It's an awful lot just to put out one book a year. So I can't imagine doing two. Yeah, Yeah, amen to that.
1: (laughs) And you don't realize it, you you know, I was like every other uh, author, the hardest part should be the writing. And it turns out the more time consuming part um, is the marketing. Mm -hmm. And that's probably because I'm truly learning things that work and things that don't work on the fly, you know, when it comes to marketing.
0: Yeah. Well, and that changes too. So you know, it's it does constantly kind of have to find what works for you but then be open to you know like new things that come along too so yeah it's kind of it, it's always a learning experience for sure so as you know you know i was introduced to your books through reader views of course um but i wasn't the one that read your first three books one of our reviewers did and uh, i became interested through her reviews so i listened to all of the audiobooks of one two and three and so I was excited when Cramdown came out because this was the first book I actually read first before I listened to the audiobook. So all of that long, you know, segue into when is the audiobook coming out?
1: You know, <laughs> so there's something else that, you know, of course, I knew nothing about um, before I started down the path of having the books come out in audiobook format. So I've met a narrator, Jimmy Moreland, who used to be in Texas and now is in Maine. Do I love? And so he's narrated all of the books and he's a little backed up right now. Mm. Uh, and I but I want him to continue to narrate the books because I like the consistency and he's he's now learned the characters and I just think he does a great job. So I think the audiobook comes out toward the end of October because I'm in the queue for him to start reading it. But he's very accurate and, and very diligent, amazingly diligent and very fast and i met him through the audition process of, on ACX which oh. is yet another amazon company that makes it so easy for uh, authors like me to get paired up with a narrator yeah and so the first book that he narrated which was fresh start he was one of like six auditions uh, that for me and i remember you, you upload three or four pages from the book so that then people interested will all be reading the same pages. And I remember telling my wife, you know, okay, I've done this. If I get like one audition, it would be a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I got like 15 in the first five minutes. Oh, wow! People got it and immediately read it and then sent me their, their draft narration. And I would say that of the 15, there were 15 different readings. It was amazing how different people, many of whom are, are actors doing this as a source of income, Yeah. how different they sounded. And I just liked the way Jimmy Moreland sounded, didn't know him from Adam. And we went back and forth on some emails and, you know, four books later, here we are.
0: Yeah. Having listened to the first three simultaneously Mm -hmm. while I was reading Cram Down, I could actually hear his voice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's really good. So my lead character is a woman and he's not, but he's really good at changing sort of almost the tone or inflection of his voice without faking that it's a woman's voice right he does a really nice job so that you always know it's 3j talking or thinking even though he's not raising his voice three octaves and uh, trying to sound like a woman
0: right Uh, yeah
1: and that that's hard to do and hard to do in a way that it's consistent but he does he does a great job
0: yeah absolutely absolutely i'm looking forward to it so i'll be the first one to to, to get your audio book <laughs> uh, well mark is there anything else you wanted to add today
1: no i, I mean anybody that wants to sort of follow along can go to mark shaken com and sign up for the newsletter it's not a spam thing it doesn't go out all that often but just sort of to follow along what's happening with the book or me and uh, that's probably the best way to get involved and you know, activate the relationship uh, more than just reading the books.
0: Right. Okay, great. Well, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure. I was so excited to talk about Cram Down. And uh, so congratulations for the successful launch and you know sharing more about the story with us.
1: Yeah, thanks very much. I appreciate being on. It's always great to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today for my interview with Mark Shakin, author of Cram Down. You can learn more about Mark and his work at markshakenauthor.com and be sure and check out our other interviews at insidescooplive.com.